welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Romans chapter 5 this morning. We're going to hit it hard. I'm going to be honest with y'all. I have not preached to anything but a camera for eight weeks. And my hands are nearly shaking. I'm actually really nervous. I don't know why. But we're going to continue on with a series that we started last week called Fixer Upper. Now, how many of you guys, I need to see your hands. How many of you have seen the show Fixer Upper? Can I see your hands? Oh, good. Almost all of us. Good. So this makes a lot more sense to us. I love the show Fixer Upper. I will warn you. It's a, it's a very wholesome show. If you watch it, you're going to start walking around your house finding things that need fixed. I talked to my dad a few weeks ago. He said, we found Fixer Upper. We really like it. I talked to him yesterday. He said, I'm a home depot, and I've just spent $400 on their trim for the house. And they're trying to tear down walls and everything else. But Fixer Upper is a show that really mirrors what God does in us. The show takes a broken down, worn out house. And a carpenter comes along who sees potential in the house. He puts love and effort into it, and he makes it into something. Isn't that a picture of what God has done in our lives? Taking worn out, broken down, honestly, bad people. And he restores us and makes us something special. So last week, just to kind of recap what we looked at last week, we started off where the show starts off. At the beginning of the show, Chip Gaines says, we find the worst house in the best neighborhood. And we looked at the fact that you and I, we are the worst house in the best neighborhood. We, we are broken down people. We find that in Romans 3 and Romans 6, where it says this, that we are all sinners. And the entire premise of where we're going over the next couple of weeks with this is that she hears me talking, and she doesn't like it. The entire premise of what uh, goes on, the entire premise of what the series goes over comes down to the fact that we are all sinners, no exceptions. And if we're honest with each other, I think we can all point to things today in our lives that God will be displeased with. And so the Bible tells us from the best of the best to the worst of the worst that before God we're all on the exact same ground. We're broken down and in need of restoration. The question that I always ask is, what made us all sinners? Why are we naturally born broken down? Why are we naturally born that way? It's not a decision we make. It's a decision or a lifestyle we're born into. The answer to that is found in Genesis chapter 3, the story of Adam and Eve. And if you look at that story, it really tells us a lot about the heart of mankind. More so than just the fact that we want to do a couple things our way or we break a few of the rules. When Satan had tempted Eve, what did he ask her? Or what did he tempt her with? He said, you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the Bible teaches us this, that what drew us away from God in the first place was a desire to be our own moral authority, to be, I like to put it this way, to be our own God. And the human race is born with this. We like to make our own rules. We like to be in control of our own life. We like to be our own moral authority. Now, with that, we can all say that in that fact, we have all disobeyed God. As a Christian and as a pastor, I wrestle with God sometimes. Where he tells me to do something, and I'm like, God, I don't want to witness that. Or sometimes I'll have it in my mind, I'm going to preach this sermon. God will say, no, you're not. And I wrestle with that. And you do as well. So we all end up at times disobeying God. It reminds me of a story from my eighth grade year. I played basketball, but my 
went to basketball practice. I don't know how much I played basketball. I, I went to basketball practice in eighth grade. And our coach at the time, Coach Watson, wanted us to be there at 7.30 in the morning. Now, for eighth graders, 7.30 in the morning is like Satan's hour. Like being at school early was the worst thing ever. Now, Coach couldn't be there at 7.30, so he said, I've got some drills for you guys to do to start off the day. It's what we call warm-ups. We had to do some running up and down some floor, some stretching, some different things that loosened our bodies up and got us ready. Well, one day, being eighth grade boys and being incredibly smart, we looked at this and said, you know what? I don't like the instructions that Coach Watson has given us. We're going to do it our way. Now, that particular day, we did our warm-ups, quote-unquote. We did them half-heartedly. Instead of running the full court, we ran to the free-throw line in the back. Instead of doing lunges that went all the way to the ground, we kind of barely went to the We did our whole warm-up for five minutes. It was supposed to take much, much longer than that. And we were so pleased with ourselves. We thought we were so smart. Coach Watson will never know. He's not even here. When he showed up about 15 minutes later, he had us all lined up. We knew something was wrong. He walked up and down the court in front of each of us and stopped at a different, uh, different voice. John, did you do your warm-ups today? Yes, sir. Kind of. Yes, sir. Okay. Tyler, did you do your warm-ups today? Yes, sir. We did our warm-ups. And this is when Coach Watson sprung in on us. This is when he caught us and showed us that he was a little smarter than we gave him credit for. I had a friend in eighth grade who was, he was six foot two with a full beard. He was a full-grown man in eighth grade. And if he did so much as walk across the court, he would develop a heart-shaped stain right here. Coach Watson said, well, if y'all did your warm-ups, why is Travis not sweating? And in that moment, we knew we were caught. There's no denying Travis' sweat spot that he gets. Coach, we kind of did our warm-ups. We didn't do them like you wanted us to. And so we spent the rest of that period running up and down the court. And as if running is not bad enough, Coach Watson thought we need to carry giant towels that when you run for 45 minutes carrying a towel in your hand is, is pretty miserable. And so I will never forget the lesson that I learned today. Number one, Coach Watson's smarter than I gave him credit for. Number two is that when you disobey coach, there are consequences. And for us, if we look at what the Bible tells us in disobeying God, we have to also understand that there are consequences for disobeying God. In, in Romans chapter 6, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. I like to put it this way. What you earn by disobeying God is death or separation. And so where we're left at, at the end of this picture of looking into ourselves, seeing ourselves in the worst house, we're left with this heaviness and this burden that we have to carry. Undeniable fact, I have disobeyed God. An undeniable fact, those who disobey God have an inescapable and that is the burden that every human being walks around with. It's the reason why people spend their entire life trying to figure out how not to die. They, they, they fear that punishment. But there's good news. See, God had a plan for broken down more our houses. He sent us a carpenter to restore us. He sent us, he saw us in a different way and he has a plan to restore us. And that's what I want to look at today is God's plan and how he does it. So in Romans chapter 5, Let's read verses 6 through 8. It says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news, and it is the story of God's goodness. The gospel actually means good news, that Jesus died 
for somebody. Let's see if you were paying attention. Who did he die for? Everyone. It says the ungodly. Have we not just pretty much stated that we are ungodly? He came to die for everyone, but the timing of when he died is important for us to understand. See, this is a story of God's love. Because he didn't die for us when we were righteous. He, he didn't die for us when we had earned his love. It says in due time he died for us when we were one without strength. When we were weak and unable to help ourselves. That's when God saw fit to die for us. Number two, he died for us when we were ungodly. When we lived according to our own rules. When we did not seek God the way that he calls us to seek him. And number three, he died for us in what the Bible and the scripture says. We were sinners. Living by our own rules. Disobeying all the rules of God. So what we see here is when God says that Jesus Christ died for us, and this needs to be said in every church across America this morning, it's not about what we've done, it's about God's love. And even as Christians that go to a church that preaches that week after week after week, sometimes in our heart, do we not get to think we have to earn God's love? Do we not think that we have messed up too much for God to love us? See, we need to be um, reassured in the fact that the story is not about us, it's a story about God's love. See, this is where the story shifts or a fixer-upper. And in the fixer-upper show, they spend a lot of time focusing on the house and the problems and the upgrades that it needs. But it doesn't take very long for the story shifts if it is no longer about the house and the horrible things that's wrong with the house. It becomes about the carpenter, his skill, his passion, and his vision to restore the house. And when we look at ourselves as broken-down houses, the story is not about us. It's the story of the skill, the vision, and the passion of Jesus Christ to die for us. Now, you guys have said that you watch Fixer Up. And I want to ask how God restores us. I want to ask you this question. It's a test to see if you want to. What is Chip Gaines' favorite day during the Fixer Up process? Who knows? Shout it out. Demolition Day. That's right, Jordan. That's the name of this sermon today is Demolition Day. Chip Gaines' favorite part of the story, or favorite part of the Fixer Up process, is Demolition Day. What you have to understand about a fixer couple is you have this wore out, broken down house. Before you can restore it, the bad things have to be. They have to be ripped out of the house. They have to be taken out. And Chip Gates takes a passion with having things ripped out from a lot of them. Dying through walls, taking a sledgehammer from this. The same way that a fixer upper house has to have an evolution day, every Christian has to have an evolution day where we allow God to remove the bad out of well, what is the base of all the bad stuff that is in me and you? It goes back to the concept of Genesis chapter 3. At the very base of all the problems that we have is this heart that I want to be my own God. I, I want to be in charge of my life. So in order for God to restore us, the first thing he does in this work is he has a demolition day. He takes this undesirable part out of us. If you would turn over to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. This is going to tell us how God puts us through an original demolition. Verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and I'm sorry, let me start over. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We will be fixer of For with the heart believe man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Here's a very simple formula where God says if we want to invite God to restore us, there are two things that we must do to invite him. The 
first thing it says, a little out of order, is that we must believe in our heart that Christ was raised from the dead. Now, I love when the Bible talks about our heart because our heart is not a physical organ. The heart is the essence of the human. So what God calls us to do is have a deep conviction in our essence that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. What makes that so important? Why do we have to believe that? Can we not just be good? Can we not just act the way he wants us to act and read our Bible in our church? Why does it start with believing that Christ was raised from the dead? Let me tell you a story about a man named Lee Strobel. Any of you guys know who Lee Strobel is? Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Taste for Christ. Lee Strobel, back in the 80s, was a, um, he graduated from Yale Law School. He was a uh, very well educated. He uh, was an atheist. He believed that anybody with any education would have to be dumb to believe these fairy tales about people being raised from the dead and based their lives around that. He hated everything that had to do with Christianity. And the worst thing happened to him that day, one day. His wife came home and she sat down with him and she said, Lee, I need you to know something. She said, I've become a follower of Jesus Christ. This wrecked Lee Strobel's world. He, he said, this is my wife. Our, our marriage cannot last her believing these things. She was always my partner. She, she helped me fight against Christians. She helped me in my arguments of disbelief against Christians. I can't be married to a woman who now suddenly believes these fairy tales. And so what he decided to do is use his skills as an investigative journalist. He said, I'm going to put God on trial. I'm going to prove that he doesn't exist. And when I do it, it will save my marriage. My wife, she has any common sense to know that there is no God. Undeniable, can't argue it. And then we'll be over this whole religion thing in my house. And so he said about using the same skills that he used as an investigative journalist for, I think it was the Chicago Tribune, to disprove God. He began researching and studying both in and out of the Bible, looking for holes in the story of Jesus, looking for things that he could take and he could put on paper and he could write a book about to prove that there is no Jesus Christ. As he went into the story, he realized that the entire bit of Christianity revolves around one thing. Christ walking down that road. In his mind, if there is no resurrection, there is no proof that there is a God. And so he focused his study on looking into the resurrection and finding a way to disprove it. He thought, you know what, this process that he had been taught in college that he had used to write so many articles, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to ask this question, he said. Did Jesus even die? Is it possible that there was no man named Jesus Christ? And if there was one, is it possible maybe he was crucified and he wasn't actually dead? And so we go into the evidence, we go into the Bible, we go into historical records. And what he found is that it is undeniable that there was a teacher and an influencer named Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago walking around. It's recorded in the Bible and it's recorded out in the Bible. And so then he asks, did this man actually die? Is it possible that he was still alive? And as he researched the uh, process of crucifixion, he found that there is not a single case from history of a person surviving the crucif uh, a Roman crucifixion. And so he came to an undeniable fact that the man named Jesus Christ, and he did not, and he died on the He found this historically unnecessary thing. He said, okay, well, if there was a man named Jesus Christ, I need to figure out where the story of him coming back to life was. See, Lee really thought this was a legend. Legends take decades and sometimes centuries to build. How long did it take after Jesus died before people started talking about this man came back to life? And what he found is outside of the Bible, he found within months, it was common knowledge in Israel that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He walked out of that grave. 
So he said it can't be alleged it happened too fast. He said, well, that's true. What I have to ask is, was the grave really empty? If the grave wasn't empty, what if it was a hoax and people just started making up the story and spreading it around? And so he researched deep into the grave and went into old Roman history. And what he found is even the Roman soldiers admitted the grave was empty because they said this, the disciples must have stolen the body. It's an admission that the grave was empty. And so he came down to one last thing. He said, I've got to look at the eyewitness accounts of people who claim that they saw Christ. And I've got to disprove that they were credible witnesses. And as he studied into the Gospels and he studied into history, he said, I found nine different eyewitness testimonies that Jesus Christ was alive after his crucifixion and his burial and after the tomb was empty. In ancient history, if you find one credible source, you're doing very well. For him to find nine, it was undeniable. Lee Strobel, an atheist who set out to disprove God, came to an undeniable conclusion that Jesus Christ walked out of that grave with his own power. This changes everything. Because, see, you cannot look at Jesus Christ as just a teacher, just an influencer, just a man, when this man walked around and he had the power undeniably over life and death. In that moment, Lee Strobel got the conviction in his heart. That even though I didn't believe this at first, I cannot deny that the evidence states that Jesus Christ walked out of the Secondly, the Bible tells us to this, that we must confess that Christ is Lord. Now, the word confess means to acknowledge. If you do something wrong and you get hauled off into jail, they're going to ask you to confess. And basically what they're saying is, would you acknowledge that you robbed that bank with your special little mask that you were wearing? Would you confess that you did this and acknowledge it? So what the Bible calls us to do is acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a belief that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That means he must be more than man who is God. And that we have to acknowledge that he is Lord. But there's a little bit more to this than just saying, I believe in the resurrection. Or even thinking, I believe in the resurrection. If you look at the word Lord in the original Greek, it's kuros. And kuros is a word that when this was written would have grabbed everybody's attention. This is the word that Greek-speaking Jews used to talk about God the Father. This is the word that the Roman emperors called themselves when people worshipped the emperors, curious Lord. The idea here is that it implies more than just being God. It implies master. So when you call somebody Lord in the old days, it's not only that you were quite saying that they were God. It came with this acknowledgement that he is superior and I am superior. He is superior and I am supported. So what Christ calls us to is to believe in our hearts that he was raised from the dead, but also to confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. Now this sets up a little bit of a conflict. How can we from our hearts acknowledge that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and also from our hearts claim that we are our own gods? That we live life our own way by our own set of moral standards? Those two things don't mix. And so what the Bible calls us to in the very church and word is surrender. We have to surrender our will to him. We have to surrender our wills to his wills. For 700 years, the universal symbol worldwide of surrender is a white flag. Wave over your head in the battle. And let your enemies know that I don't want to fight with you anymore. I'm tired of this conflict. You win. I, I give up. Now, usually surrender comes with some negative consequences. When you surrender, it will cost you something. 
It will cost you whatever you are tired of. And so in our conflict with God, when we live life our own way, and I say, I am my own moral authority, and I don't look at God as the moral authority of the world, we have to surrender that to Him. It will cost us our mindset that we can make our own rules. Do you know why they used to lie for The color white, worldwide, is a symbol of peace. And so what we're actually doing when we raise our white flags to God, when we raise our white flags in battle, we're saying, I desire peace with you. I, I desire to no longer be in conflict with you. And I give up my side of the battle for that peace. It's not worth fighting. The price of the fight is too And for Christians, for all people, what God calls us to do is wave our white flag and surrender to Him and say, the cost of the battle is too high. I desire peace. And here's what's special about in world wars, worldly wars, when you desire peace with somebody, they dominate you and it's a bad thing. But when we ask for peace with God, we're asking for peace with the Prince of Peace. He didn't come here to dominate us. He didn't come here to, to lord over us. He came here to be our God. He came here to save us. What we get when we surrender is He gives to us instead of us giving to Him. But it will cost you. It will cost you your desire to be now, for everybody here, everybody watching, we have to ask ourselves a question. When I decided to come to church, when I decided to become a Christian, did I go through that actual process of surrender? Did, did I let myself die for the sake of letting God be greater? Did, did I give everything to Him and say, God, I'm done with this conflict of being my own God. God, I surrender to your authority and your power. And I would put it this way. You can't say that you surrender to God. You probably don't. But even if we are Christians, our life is a day-to-day raising of our lifetimes and surrender to God. Because every day we are still tempted, even as saved individuals in the process of being restored by the carpenter of the universe, we are still fighting them day in and day out. The things that we know we shouldn't do, and we do it in private, and we don't say it at church because those people know that we shouldn't do it. God sees it. And God waits for us to raise White flags. One more verse. John chapter 1, verse 12. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Lee Stroll came to this undeniable fact that Jesus Christ walked out of that grave. But it wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough to get him out of conflict with God. He could not surrender the fact that he was not his own God, even though he acknowledged that, or even though he knew in his heart that there was a God over him. Lee Strobel said, this is the last verse that I read as an atheist. He said, this is when it all clicked. And this is when I surrendered to God. Verse 12, he said, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Lee Strobel read this verse, and it clicked. He said, there's a very simple formula to acknowledging that God is Lord in my life. He said, it's for those who believe, Believe plus receive equals become a child of God. There are a lot of people sitting in a lot of churches across the world today who have a mental or maybe even a heart belief that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. They have never received His grace and His love. They have never gone far enough to say, I will follow you. I will be yours. They're going to be very surprised when they get to heaven and say, you know, I had this knowledge. I knew that you raised from the dead. I went to 
church every Sunday. 